chapter 1, starting at verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he should be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted his name to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Thank you. You may be seated. Uh, what a sweet uh, time it's been this morning. And uh, I just want to say, one of the things that was such a blessing to me already this morning was the, the time of singing. What I'm about to say, I could literally say it every single Sunday, um, but just in a really special way, it, it hit me this morning. That was just, you know, I get the privilege of being able to share the word of God here during the message, and that's a blessing for me. But when you all sing and when the congregation sings, you're proclaiming the word of God to me and to those around you as we sing these songs. And uh, my heart was really just filled this morning and so, so grateful to the Lord for that. Um, and I just, I just count it such a sweet blessing to hear the saints raise their voices in song. And so um, I just, I pray that your hearts were encouraged by what you even heard already through the songs that were sung as God did that for me. And so um, now... I pray that by God's grace and mercy, I'll be able to return that blessing as we come to the Word of God. So with that, are you ready to learn and grow this morning? I hope you are. We're going to open up to Luke chapter 1. As you turn there to Luke chapter 1, I want to draw your attention to, to something. You know, I'm a fan of history. I, I enjoy historical biographies. I've mentioned that often in, in the past. And a few years ago, <clears throat> I was reading a, a, a biography of one of our presidents and and I noticed something that I was like, oh my goodness, this happens actually in all the biographies that I read and I study. And, and what, what I discovered was this, you know, you get a biography, like in this case on Andrew Johnson, and you're reading this biography, and, and it's a biography about Andrew Johnson or John Adams or, you know, whoever it is, and, and the biographies never start, though, with that person. They, they never begin with stories about that individual. I've noticed in these historical biographies, they always set the historical context for that person's life. They'll often talk about their family or their grandfathers or their great-grandfathers and then kind of lead up in then to the life of the historical figure that you're studying. And just time after time, all the biographies I've read, they, they fit this, this pattern. And what struck me so much is that as we're studying the Gospel of Luke, we see the exact same thing. The only difference is that this is a biography inspired by God written 2,000 years before any modern historians write a biography. And what does Luke do in his gospel? It's the gospel about the life of Jesus Christ. But he doesn't just begin by telling us stories about Jesus. In fact, the entire first chapter really up to this point has been focused on this guy Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And, and you begin to wonder, it's like, why, if this is a, if this is a gospel about the life of Jesus, are, are we reading about Zechariah and Elizabeth? And it's because, because of what their child that they would have together, who he was and what he was to be about. You see, what Luke does in his gospel time and time again is he wants us 
as God's people to understand the context in which Jesus's life takes place. Not just the historical context, but the rich and deep theological context. I find all too often that when we study the life of Jesus, predominantly in like Protestant, modern evangelical churches, we get so focused on Jesus as being the one who died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins so that we would have eternal life. And that is glorious and that is right and that is true. But we can't just take Jesus as that alone. In fact, what we see in the Gospel of Luke is that God wants us to understand that Jesus' life and what he accomplished was something far more greater, far, part of this great grand plan that when we understand it in its context, it really, it draws us into deeper appreciation and deeper worship of who Christ is. And so that's what we're going to continue on today is we're going we're to look here in Luke chapter 1 and this continuation of the story about Zechariah and Elizabeth and the birth of their son John. In fact, the sermon this morning is going to be broken up into two parts. The first part is what we're going to talk about, the birth of John. And the, the first verses are going to focus on the birth of John. And then we're going we're to look at what Zechariah eventually is going to say about the meaning of the moment. But for now, I just want us to talk about the birth of John and, and what its significance is for, for us. And so it all starts here. In Luke 1, verse 57, it says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Now, outside of the context, this is a really understated verse. A woman was due to give birth, and she gives birth. Yay for her. Good job, right? He's like, but no, in the context, this is something glorious. First off, just as a small thing, do you notice how it says, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Uh, for those of you who have given birth, um, when I have seen, and my own wife when she was pregnant, I have yet to find a pregnant woman who's like, you know what, my due date is coming, but I hope this baby is two weeks late, right? Does anybody, nobody ever feels that way. I, I like how the way that this is written in the Greek, when it says, now the time came for Elizabeth to gave, give birth, and she bore a son, the idea is that like when she was due, the baby came. And that could be a praise the Lord, hallelujah moment in and of itself, right, for her. But there's so much more to this. The statement that she bore a son, church, do you remember the story? Elizabeth is old. She is really old at this moment. And I don't mean that to, uh, you know, make, like she was beyond childbearing years. So for her to give birth is a huge thing. I did this the first hour. I was so tempted. But and I'm not going to, you know, have, have you do this where it's like, you know, find the person here today that you look at and they're like, they're so old they could never give birth, okay? We're not, not going to point out anybody, but I'm going to say, like, God's word wants us to know that Elizabeth was so beyond childbearing years that her relative Mary, when in the verses before this, when we discover that the angel Gabriel also comes to Mary and says, you're going to give birth to the Son of God, the eternal promised King. And, and as a sign to you, to give you encouragement that this message is true, your relative Elizabeth is pregnant in her old age. Okay, the fact that Elizabeth's pregnancy was to be a sign confirming the incredible message that Mary was gonna give birth to the Son of God is an indication that this woman was old. Okay? She had to be so old that Mary would be like, if, if Elizabeth is pregnant, then I can believe what God says is true. Are you tracking with me on this? Okay? And, and so when we look at the birth of John, the first thing that I want us to highlight, and I don't want us to miss this, 
is that the birth of John is a display of God's power. If you're taking notes, like this small little thing that's happening here, don't miss this in your heart and mind. God is displaying his power in the miraculous birth, both in the conception of and the birth of this baby boy. God was doing something that was beyond the realm of human possibility. And when God does something beyond the realm of human possibility, he is showing and displaying his power. And the people around Elizabeth and Zechariah, they knew this, because look at verse 58. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. They acknowledge that what is happening is by the hand of God. So for us, as we read this, the birth of John means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is that God is showing just how powerful he is. And I just want, our, I want to pause here and take this in for us as a church family. And I want us to think about like how consistently the Bible wants us to understand our God and his power. If you don't have this verse underlined, you might want to underline it. It's Psalm 6211. Psalm 6211 says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Let me read that again. The psalmist says, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. I think the psalmist's wording here is really interesting. He says that power belongs to God. That God is the owner. And so I want to ask the question, how much power do you and I have according to that verse? If power belongs to God, who is the owner of all the power? God is. In our humanity, we struggle with this. Sometimes we think that we have power, we have control. The answer to that question of how much power, how much control do you have is zero. Any power that we manifest, any strength that we show is because God grants it to us because it belongs to him. In fact, Jeremiah 32, 27 says it this way. Behold, the Lord says through the prophet, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Is anything too hard for God, church? No. Why? Because we just saw what the psalmist says. He has all the power. It all belongs to him. In fact, when Mary was hearing from Gabriel that somehow she was going to give birth to God incarnate, she, she says, how can somebody like me, a mere mortal, give birth to the son of, of God? She wasn't doubting God's ability. She was just saying, I just don't understand how this kind of conception can take place. Gabriel comes to her and says, well, it's going to be through the Holy Spirit that you will conceive. And then he closes by saying, because Mary, nothing is impossible with God. I mean, do you hear the message of God's word to you? Nothing is impossible. All things are possible. I, I, I wonder when we see Mary and when we see Elizabeth giving birth here and we see a display of God's power, Where's your heart at in relationship to who God is and what he can do in your life and in the life of others? Um, you know, power sometimes is just demonstrated, we think, in like rescuing and saving. And, and we like it when God shows off his power in ways that he does something miraculous and he changes something it for, to our favor for our good. But you know how God often shows his power in the most beautiful ways? 
is when he just sustains you through something. God's power is often on display, yes, in the miraculous change of a situation, but also in his sustaining of us. Church, he is worthy of praise because he has all the power. And I would want your heart and my heart to rest. In light of things that happen in the world on a day-to-day basis in our own lives, let us not be a people who doubt, but let us hear and see this story and once again reaffirm our hearts, nothing is impossible with God. He can do things that we think cannot be done. He took a very old woman and he enabled her to conceive. He took a virgin and by the Spirit, the Son of God came to be. So we see here the power of God revealed. But there's something else in the text. And it's in verse 59 and following. Let me just continue the story. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. So John is now born. Eight days later, they go to circumcise him. This was part of Jewish law. The the male of every family was to be circumcised. This was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And we're going to look at that covenant in detail next week. And so this was Old Testament law, that that a man would carry with him the sign of the covenant, that he would always know and see that, that he was part of God's chosen people. And so you'd circumcise the male on the eighth day. Now, something that became tradition at that time was that you would also name the child on the eighth day. Now, that wasn't prescribed by God's law. That was just a tradition that the Jews began. They're like, hey, we're circumcised on the eighth day. You know what? Why don't we name the child on on the eighth day as well? So for the first eight days of John's life, he was just baby boy, you know? That's that's just like, here's your baby. And and so they waited, and they were going to name him on the eighth day. And so when the eighth day comes, look at what happens. I, I love this. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. Now, do you see when it says that they came together? Um, It was the tradition that the father would be the one who would perform the circumcision. He didn't have to. Over time, it would eventually become a rabbi and some other things. But but it was typically the father that would do the circumcision. And you had a large crowd of people that would come. Kind of an awkward thing, I feel like. I don't know that I'd want to be there necessarily. Don't do well in those situations. But, but at minimum, they, were, they required by tradition 10 witnesses to be present. So there were a lot of people around. And so they, so they go to circumcise him, and then they go to name the child, and something really remarkable happens. They say, okay, so I'm assuming that his name's going to be what? Zechariah. Because that's his dad's name. And that was the tradition. You name the firstborn son after the father. But she says, no, he shall be called John. I like when Jenny was reading it. She gave us a little emphasis. No, he shall be called John. And look at their response to this, verse 61. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. Well, why are, where did John come from? And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be Now, this is important for two reasons. One, we know that the angel Gabriel told Zechariah that because of his unbelief, he would be mute. He wouldn't be able to speak until the time that the baby was was born. This seems to indicate that not only was he mute, but that he's potentially also, what do you think? Deaf, because they had to make signs to him. Why didn't they just speak to him? Now, we can't say that for sure, but it wouldn't be on the pale that he would be both mute and deaf. And, And so... They turn to him and they say, is this correct? Which shows us the second thing. Listen, this wasn't biblical culture, but this was culture at that time and still another place in the world. When the wife comes and says his name's to be John, 
the people say, yeah, but is that what the dad wants? <laughs> Are you tracking with me on that one? Like, do you see the, the place of women in society at that time was like, yeah, okay, great, you're telling us, but we'll, we'll believe it when we hear from the man, okay? And I love then what Zechariah does. He signals for a writing tablet, verse 63. And he wrote very tersely, his name is John, and they all wondered. I think they all wondered because the husband and wife were in agreement. No, I'm just kidding. No, they, I, they, they wondered because why would you not give your name to your son? Now, they're going to not have to wonder all that long, as we're going to see here in just, just a moment. But in this instance, he, he fulfills what God had called him to do. You are to name your son John. And the way that that comes across in the Greek, um, it is a little terse. It's almost like you should have listened to my wife. She said his name is John. His name is John. And verse 64 says, and what happened? Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke blessing God. Now, what he says, what he blesses God about, we're going to see in just a moment. But look at how the crowd responds to all of this. His ability now to speak. And fear came on all their neighbors. That's awe came on everyone. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. Remember, Zechariah is a priest. People would have known he had, he had some level of recognition in society. And they're, and they're amazed at what's happened. Not only that his wife has given birth, but now with his name being John, and, and all of a sudden Zechariah being able to speak. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. The people recognize there's a uniqueness to this moment. A miracle has taken place. A miracle both in the birth, but also in all of a sudden a man being given the ability to speak when he's been silent for nine months. And so they find all of this absolutely remarkable. John's birth to them, not only was a display of God's power, but church, here's the second thing. It's a display of God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Specifically to Zechariah and Elizabeth, because what had God said? God had told Zechariah that for nine months, he would be unable to speak until his child was born, and that he was to name that child John. Now, I always used to think, wait a second, the child was born, but it took eight days until he was circumcised and named that he was actually able to speak. I thought God had said, when your child is born, you'll be able to speak. But in reality, God had said, no, when your child is born and his name is John, your speech will be restored to you. So it wasn't literally until the name was given to the child in full obedience to what God said would take place that then God shows his faithfulness and he allows his servant to be able to finally speak. Church, we see this over and over again in God's word. When God makes a promise, guess what? He keeps his promises. He didn't keep Zechariah mute at minimum, mute and deaf at worst. Instead, he's, he did what he told Zechariah he would do. And what happens next in the text, here's what we're going to see. What Zechariah does next in the text is shows that God has not just simply been faithful to him, but he has been faithful to all people through the fulfillment of his word. In fact, what I see happening next in the text is really the fulfillment of Numbers 23, 19. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man, that he should lie 
or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? In Zechariah's life, he said, this is going to happen to you, and then this will happen. But throughout the entirety of God's word, what we're going to discover here is that whenever he has spoken in this thing that's happening, God is faithful to his word. In fact, what comes next in the text, I've entitled the meaning of the moment. The meaning of the moment. The moment that his, his mouth is loosed and he is able to speak, what we're going to see Zechariah do is he is going to teach us, as he did even back then, exactly what all of this means, the birth of his son and the fulfillment of this, this prophecy. And the very first thing that he does, look with me at the text, is this. It says, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. Now, often we think about prophecy. I find most people, when you talk about prophecy, they're like, oh, it's a telling of the future. Do you find that most people think about that when there's like, oh, he, he, was, he was a prophet. He foretold what was to come. And in the scriptures, sometimes prophecy is found in that way. But the majority of prophecy in the Bible is simply those who speak God's word for him. And so prophecy is just God's word being made known as God wants it to be revealed. And this is the case here. When Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit, as Elizabeth has been filled, what he's going to come and do is he's just going to speak to us what God wants us to hear. And what he has to say is quite remarkable. And it starts with these words in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Praise God, he says. Our God is worthy of praise. He is to be exalted. His name is to be blessed. Mary did the exact same thing. Now, based church upon what we've already seen in the text, you and I should be like, yeah, no, I mean, look, God is faithful. God is all powerful. Yeah, he's worthy of praise for those reasons. But what, what Zechariah does here is he says, I want you to know why God is worthy of praise. And he's worthy of praise because what is the meaning of this moment? The meaning of this moment is that God has fulfilled his promises. What you're going to see with me right now is that Zechariah makes forth this, this beautiful declaration for us that with the birth of his son, with the coming of the Messiah, God has fulfilled his promises. God has done what he has said he would do, and that is going to have an impact on all of our lives, and it makes him worthy of all praise. It makes him worthy of, of all praise. You know, sometimes you and I, can look back upon a moment and realize its significance. I remember the first time I ever met my wife, you know, it was after a hockey game and she was there with a group of other people and I can look back and be like, that was the first time I met Hannah. That was pretty darn significant. <laughs> my life was changed from that moment on. What Zechariah does in our text this morning, he says, I'm not going to look back and tell you this is what that moment means. He's saying, in real time, as it's happening, I want you to know the significance of this. And so what's the significance of this moment? Well, he's going to say two things in what comes next. We're only going to get to look at one of them today. And that is, as we look at what Zechariah says here in verses 68 through 79, he is making a declaration about God fulfilling his covenant promises. Look at this with me, starting in verse 68. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, 
the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him with fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way to give knowledge of salvation to his people and in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zechariah here gives us literally a theological history lesson that in doing so helps us to understand the significance of Jesus, not just then, but even now. And the first thing that I want us to draw our attention to that will not excite you when I say it, but I pray by the end, you will be excited by the statement, is that through Jesus Christ, the Davidic covenant is fulfilled. The very first thing that Zechariah says, the meaning of this moment, how you and I should be thinking about the meaning of this moment, is that with the birth of my son, John, and, and with all that's about to come, the Davidic covenant is fulfilled. If you listened to what Zechariah said here, he did something really interesting. Do you notice that throughout Zechariah's song of praise, everything that he says is in the past tense? And now you might be thinking, I was told I was going to church, not an English class. Why are you bringing up past tense? Because past tense matters in this situation. Notice how he says, God has redeemed. God has saved. God has raised up. Past tense, events that are completed. But here's the crazy thing. What's up with Zechariah in saying that these things have come to pass? Because when the angel came to him and he said, you're going to give birth to or not you, your, your wife Elizabeth's going to give birth to John and he's going to be the forerunner for the Messiah. The idea was that, that these things are going to take place. John's going to prepare the way. John at this point is eight days old. Jesus has not even been born yet. Yet what is Zechariah saying? He's saying, God has visited us. God has redeemed us. God has saved us. He's saying the Davidic covenant has been fulfilled. Why is he saying that when John isn't even able to talk yet? It's because Zechariah understands something that I pray our hearts would always understand. That when God begins his plan, nothing can stop it. It's as good as done. And so Zechariah says, "It, it doesn't matter that John can't talk yet. It doesn't matter that the Messiah hasn't even been, been born yet. The plan has been fulfilled because God is bringing it to bear because he's all powerful, because he's faithful. Listen, what has been promised to David is now coming to, to pass. And so as we read, as we think about the life of Jesus, that's why I say through Jesus Christ, the Davidic covenant has been fulfilled because this is how Zechariah sees what's taking place in that moment. But that leads to a question for us here today. What does that actually mean? Like, why should I be excited about that? Why does that actually matter in my life today? And I'm saying, well, thank you so much for asking. I'm about to tell you. (laughs) This is why we should be able to praise God. Because if you notice, Zechariah says, because this has been fulfilled, blessed be the Lord. 
And you know why for us you can say blessed be the Lord? It's because when you understand what it really means. But see, here's what the David Covenant's all about. See, covenants, we don't use that word all that often today unless you're doing like CC&Rs in a real estate transaction or something like that, right? Like a covenant in the Old Testament was a binding promise. In its most simplest form, it's just a binding promise. It's, it's, it's something that God said that he would do and he will ultimately do it. So God made a binding promise to a man named David. Now, who was David? Well, David was one of the kings of Israel. But what was the promise that he had made? Well, you're not gonna understand David's promise unless we go backwards a little bit. Throughout the Old Testament, there are a number of these binding promises, these covenants that God makes. I wanna show you just a little picture of it. This, is, this isn't all of them, but these are the significant ones as we see it unfold. All the way back to Adam and Eve, the very first man and woman that were created were our representatives, intended to be God's representatives. Humanity was made in the image of God. We were called to represent God's reign and rule on this earth, but when sin entered in through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, that distorted the image of God and we failed to live the life that he had made us to live. So what does God do? He goes to Adam and he makes him a promise. One day from you will come the Redeemer, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. And so all humanity from Adam forward is saying, who's gonna be the one? Who's gonna rescue us? Who's gonna deliver us? Who's gonna restore what was messed up in the garden? And when, when you come to, to Noah, you see that God actually destroys the earth with a flood. It's like he's starting over, if you will, with, with Noah. And he makes a, a covenant promise with him. Now, it's not salvific, but it's a promise to say, listen, there's not gonna be another destruction like this of, of the earth until the very end. And then you come to Abraham, and what does God do with Abraham? For the very first time, we begin to see clear, and we're gonna see this next week. God hones in and he says, Abraham, you're a pagan, and I'm taking you out of all the people of the earth, and I'm selecting you and your seed, and you will be the ones who are to represent me to the nations, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So for the first time, we begin to see that in Abraham. Oh, this is who the rescuer is gonna come from. He's gonna come through Abraham's line. And so God makes a promise to him. And so we begin to think, we're getting excited. All right, God, we now know that the Redeemer's gonna come through Abraham's line. And so Abraham and the Jewish people, they, they live as God's people. They go down into Egypt and then God redeems them out of Egypt, out of slavery. He gives them their law with Moses at Sinai. And he says, here's how you're to live in the land and to be my people. They fail to do that. And so they ask for a king and God grants them a king. And the idea of a king within the nation of Israel was to be God's representative to the people and to lead and to guide them. But guess what? Because they were earthly kings, they failed to lead. They failed to bear the image of God and ruling God's people in the right way. And so when you come to David, he was supposed to be the, the godly king, but he was a murderer and he was an adulterer. And yet God comes to him and he says, listen, and we find this in 2 Samuel 7. He comes to David and he says, David, humanity, your line in and of itself, what you're doing, it's not going to be enough. And so when you come to 2 Samuel, we read these words, when your days are fulfilled, and you lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. And the son that would come was Solomon. And he shall build a house for my name. He would be the one who would build the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom, what? Forever. The promise that's being made there to David is that through his line, not only would, would the deliverer come through the Jewish people, through Adam, but now he narrows it even more and he says, that deliverer, that rescue is gonna come through you, David, and through your line. And so the people of God from that time, they're looking 
and they're waiting to be freed, to have someone to rule over them as God's king who would put all things right. But things get really bad. In fact, one king after another fails, and eventually God's people go off into exile, into Babylon, to Assyria, and and they're beginning to wonder, God, are you going to fulfill your promise? It gets so desperate for them that God sends his prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others, to say, listen, I know things are horrible for you, but God hasn't forsaken his promise. He's going to bring the king. He will deliver you. You'll be brought back into the land, and your king will come. And then they waited, and they waited, and they waited until God came to a girl in Nazareth and said, as we saw earlier, that the pronouncement to Mary was that you will give birth to a son and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. It was to Mary that we now see who exactly this king will be. And so Zechariah, what is he doing here? He's saying, guess what, everybody? Guess what? The king has come and his name is Jesus. You don't have to look for anybody else. You don't have to look for anybody else. The king has come, but why should we be excited about it? Because look at what he says this king will do. Do you see it? It's right there in the text. He says that this king is the one who redeemed his people and brought salvation for his people. So what is the meaning of all of this, the fulfillment of the Davidic prophecy? It's that we receive salvation and we receive redemption. It comes to us through Jesus Christ alone. You who were captives are now being able to be made free because your king is stronger than any other king. And so he comes to redeem and he comes to save. There is no salvation, there is no redemption apart from him. That word redemption is to buy back at a cost. Typically it was used of those who are in slavery. And so sometimes it's financially that someone is redeemed, meaning a payment had to be made to bring them back in. Sometimes that payment was through war. And what the Davidic king does as he paid whatever cost was necessary for God's people to experience redemption and salvation. There's no other way. There's no other person. And Zechariah says, don't you know how wonderful this is? Because the Davidic king has come, salvation is made possible. Redemption from captivity can be yours. But the question is, to who or to what? What is it that he rescues us from? Notice verse 71 says that we should be saved from the hands of our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. Do you know who the Jews thought their great enemies were? It was the social, geopolitical people around them. The Romans were their oppressors. But I'm telling you, if you go back to Isaiah and what Isaiah the prophet said, the captivity that you and I find ourselves in is not a captivity to foreign powers. I mean, that's oppressive and it's not great. But it goes all the way back to the garden. Who was it that the Redeemer would crush? Who was it that, that the Redeemer would deal with? Our captivity is to sin, 
to the evil that exists inside of all of us, for the wages of sin is death. Jesus is talked about in the book of Colossians by Paul that when he went to the cross, he canceled the record of debt that was against us and he conquered the foes of evil. Our sin is what we need to be delivered from. We need someone stronger than ourselves to save us and to deliver us and only the Davidic king could do that. And Zechariah says that Davidic king's name is Jesus. And so if you are in Christ today, if Christ is your savior, if Christ is your king, then you are no longer a slave to sin. No longer do the powers of this present darkness overshadow you. This is what we saw in Ephesians. Zechariah wants us to live in the knowledge that because the king has come, you are no longer in bondage. Your king reigns over you. Your king's on the throne. Nobody's going to thwart his plans and his purposes in your life. Are you walking in that though? Are you believing in that? You're not to be looking to anyone else. Now, there's a reality that, that, that God's kingdom has been established now, and we're going to talk about that there's more to come in just a second. But let's stop and consider right here, right now, what we want to know. Redemption is yours. Are you a captive? Are you a slave? Does sin have power over you? Zechariah he can't praise God. You can't praise God if that were still true. What is there to rejoice in today if sin can still have mastery over the Christian? Is there any joy for you? Is there any hope for you? The answer is no, but that's not what's presented. No, our hope rests in that the king is on his throne. I, I, listen to, not me, my words mean absolutely nothing here. Titus 2.14 says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from some of the lawlessness in our life. Is that what the text says? No. To redeem us from how much lawlessness? Oh, let's try it one more time all together now. Here we go. Gave himself for us to redeem us from what? All lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Romans 6, 6 says, we know that our old self, church, listen to this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. It's either one thing or it's the other. Either you're enslaved to sin or you're not. Praise God, Jesus came to fulfill the Davidic covenant so that you no longer are a slave to sin. The king is on his throne. And here's the beautiful thing about this. There's a story that's told about a young boy. He was an orphan in a town. In the orphanage where he was living, there was a fire that took place. They were able to get the orphans out of the lower part of the orphanage. But this young boy was up on the second floor and the fire began to rage and they realized as the fireman came that he was on the second floor. And they didn't know how they were gonna be able to ultimately get to him, but a neighbor nearby who had often come and served in the orphanage, he recognized the boy was up there and he saw that there was a metal pole that was attached to the building, one of those really old um, drain pipes that, that went, went down. And as the building is on fire, the man climbed that drain pole, got the boy and put him on his back. Now, one of the things, because the building had been on fire for some time is, um, I don't know what you know, what, do you know what happens when metal is by heat by any chance? <laughs> yeah, like it gets hot. And so the man, despite the pain that was happening, went up, got the boy, saved him, delivered him, and he was rescued. 
this became kind of quite the story. And so the story goes that the people in the town recognized, we can't have this boy. After everything he went through, he can't be an orphan any longer. We got to do something for him. Somebody needs to adopt him. Because he was a little bit of a celebrity at the time, a number of people wanted to raise up and, and say, we'll adopt him. The mayor of the town, some of the more wealthy citizens, they all came before the judge and they made their case as to why they could best take care of the boy. As the boy heard all of this, he, was, he got no reaction. He wasn't really excited about anybody else that was trying to adopt him that day. But at the very end, one man walked in. And the judge asked him, he says, are you interested in adopting the boy? And he said, yes, I am. He says, and for what reason do you want to adopt the boy? Why should we give him over to you? And he said, I don't have much to offer, but, uh, but I can show you this. And he showed his hands that had been burnt and scarred from having climbed the pole to rescue the boy. The boy, seeing the man, immediately had a smile on his face. Because the man who had came, who wanted now to bring him into his family, was the same one who had rescued him. He had paid a cost in order to save the child. Church, think about what Christ has done for us. Not only were we in a situation in our enslavement to sin that we couldn't get out of unless someone stronger than us rescued us, Christ did that, but he did that as we would see the prophet Isaiah saying, at the cost of his life, he was pierced for our transgressions. The great king was struck for our inequities. Our chastisement was placed upon him, and so now we have peace with God. That's what Jesus did for us. He came in as this conquering king, and so you and I are no longer captives to sin's power over us. We are children of God, children of the king. Are you a person who believes in your freedom from the power of sin over you, are, are you still waiting for somebody to deliver you from it? If you're in Christ today, your delivery has taken place. Now, does that mean that you'll never struggle with sin? No, you'll still have struggles because there's still more to come. God's kingdom is established, but one day, one day when it's all said and done, all of our slight and momentary struggles will fully be put away. But in the moment, as we do struggle, as we do battle, our king is on the throne. But when that final day comes, I want to read for you what it will look like. And it comes to us from Revelation 21. I want your heart to have hope, not just in the present, that you can face sin in your life and know that you have your redeemer with you and that you no longer are enslaved to that sin, but listen to the day that is still yet to come. This in and of itself, being freed from sin, should give us reason to praise. But then, John says in Revelation 21, here's what we look forward to. Oh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Oh, and I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write down, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. You can't believe the words of Revelation if you don't first believe the words of Jesus. When he says, I have come 
that they might have life and have it to the full. There's more to come, yes, but in the here and now, because Christ has come, because he has conquered sin and death and hell for us, we get to live in the freedom that he's purchased. And one day, we get to enjoy this for eternity. No matter what's happening in your life, no matter what you see on the news, these are the truths that our hearts run back to. These are the truths that our hearts cling to. Redemption, salvation, they're ours today. Glory is even yet to come. So praise be to Jesus Christ, amen? Let's say with Zechariah, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in you we find complete peace and hope and rest. Because in you, we know that anything that you say you will do, you accomplish. And Lord, so often we can look at what's happening in the world. I know even my heart this last week can be drawn to things and saying, God, are you on your throne? Is your, is your power really there? And all I have to do is I have to look back to Jesus. I have to look back and I have to see that, yes, you are reigning, you are in control. Your power is unmatched because you have acted to save and to redeem. You have fulfilled what you said you would do. And so, Lord, if our hearts find doubting this week, if our hearts are prone to wander this week, Lord, let us cling to what we know to be true. Let's not cling to our feelings. Let us cling to our ever-changing emotions, but let's cling to Jesus, for he is the fulfillment of all your promises, and he is the one who will one day make all things new. And so it's in his name that we pray, and all God's people said, amen and amen.